Hello from Politicology. I'm Mike Madrid in for Ron Steslow, and welcome back to the State of the Vote. Every Tuesday, we're going to break down what you need to know about the movement in the congressional races that will determine who controls the House and Senate and will set the foundation for power dynamics leading up to the presidential election. We've partnered with our friends at Decision Desk HQ, who are among the most trusted experts in measuring and modeling public opinion and election outcomes. They're the election mathletes behind major outlets like The Economist, BuzzFeed News, Vox Media, Insider, and The New York Times for election night results and final calls on races. If you want to follow along, DecisionDeskHQ.com is where you can find their House and Senate elections model, which updates daily. I'm joined today by Kyle Williams from the DDHQ team. Kyle was one of the lead data scientists behind Decision Desk HQ's record-setting forecasting model for Congress and the Electoral College in 2020. He also holds a PhD in theoretical physics from the University of Illinois. Kyle, thanks for making the time. Thank you so much. So last week, we gave an overview of the issues and concerns that are shaping the election environment. Have you seen any major changes over the last week? So I think one of the useful things to look at week over week is just how is the national generic ballot shifted? So this is just if we ask people, do you plan when you walk into the voting booth to vote for a Democrat or a Republican? Generally speaking, who do you plan to vote for? And over the past week, we've not seen that change significantly in the DDHQ polling average that last week we had Republicans leading by about a point or so. This week, we still have Republicans leading by a point or so. And this is why, for example, if you look at our House forecast over the past week, you haven't seen a whole lot of top-line movement, that we still have Republicans uh, looking like they're going to land with something like 229 uh, House seats at the end to 206 seats for for Democrats. So we're still looking at something like a 76, 75 percent chance for Republicans to take control of the House of Representatives and end up with something like a 25-seat majority, give or take. So the high-level state of play in the House hasn't changed uh, a whole lot. In the Senate, things are a little bit more complicated because, as we've talked about, most uh, only a third or so of the Senate is up in any given is up in any given election cycle, and so the Senate any given election year is driven a little bit more by the idiosyncrasies, or whichever states are up that cycle, or whichever candidates are facing re-election. And so this year, you hear us talk a whole lot, like you have on past shows, about Georgia, about Arizona, about Nevada, about Ohio, about North Carolina. And so this week, we saw things get a little bit better for Republicans in the Senate, that last week we gave Democrats something like a 68% chance to retain control of the chamber, and this week we have their number down to something like a 64% chance to retain control of the chamber. So you've seen a small but significant amount of movement from Democrats and, and toward Republicans, although we still have Democrats as modest favorites to keep control of the House. And right now, we have the median outcome at uh, them keeping their 50-50 uh, split control of of the chamber. Are you seeing a, a more uh, frequent bounce back and forth between the parties than you normally see? So I think this particular cycle, we've seen you know a significant amount of consistency in the House in in particular. That if you look at the the House, we've had Republicans sort of in that seventy to eighty percent range to retain control for a while. And in the House, of course, you don't have as much polling in individual House seats. It's pretty challenging to poll an individual House seat. And so uh, when you think about the House and trying to understand the dynamics of who's going to have a House majority, that's going to be driven more by the fundamentals, by things like fundraising, by things like the national environment. And over the past week. 
week or two weeks, we haven't seen a ton of a ton of change in that national environment and that generic ballot. And actually, something exciting that uh, when we chat at this time next week, we'll have the quarter three October FEC numbers, and that's going to cause a significant change in the model. Although we're still getting those in actually right now as we speak, so that'll be something exciting to see in terms of how the model shifts in terms of which particular candidates and which districts are competitive after we get in those uh, that last round of October fundraising numbers. Um, and then in the Senate, again, the Senate, I think you always see a bit more back and forth because in the Senate, you have candidates who have a lot higher name ID, candidates who maybe uh, have a particular brand in a way that, personal brand in a way that you don't often see with, with house reps. And so I think we've seen more back and forth uh, in those races. Um, and in particular, in states like Pennsylvania, I think we've seen a lot of tightening in particular relative to the conventional wisdom that I think if you look back uh, earlier in the year, there was a lot of polling indicating that John Fetterman would win by you know, quite large margins consistently. But if you step away from the mechanics of any or the, the optics of any one particular candidate, I think you would expect Pennsylvania in a midterm year with a Democratic president to be very, very competitive. And over the past month, we've seen that race tighten significantly in, in our model, that this week we put Pennsylvania back to toss-up um, from lean Democratic following some polling showing that Fetterman's polling average was continuing to narrow somewhat. And I think it's fair to say revert sort of to be closer to what you would expect to see in a state like Pennsylvania during a Democratic president's midterm. And Pennsylvania, of course, was one of your biggest movers on your list, right? Yeah. So this week we moved Pennsylvania from lean Democratic to toss up following uh, some polling that showed John Fetterman's lead continuing to, to narrow. That last week we had Fetterman at uh, like around a five-point polling lead, and this week we have him around at a three-and-a-half-point polling lead, which is significant when you remember that this is a holistic average across a number of different polls. So we've continued to see Fetterman's polling advantage narrow, and as a result of Fetterman's continued narrowing polling uh, average, uh, that race has become now a toss-up in, in our model rather than something that leans Democratic. We still see John Fetterman with... Uh, a modest advantage, but it's quite close that there really is a real chance that um, Mehmet Oz could, could win that race um, and continue to hold that seat for Republicans. So Kyle, what, what would you, um, from a campaign perspective, what can, what can John Fetterman's team do to push back and regain that ground that they lost? What, are you seeing an issue matrix that's moving that explains the movement? So I think I would caution from thinking about it in terms of John Fetterman losing ground necessarily, that I think what we saw earlier in the year is Mimin Oz and Dave McCormick and some other individuals who ran in that Republican primary. Uh, that was a really, really brutal Republican primary we saw in Pennsylvania for that Senate seat earlier in the year that I think left Dr. Oz sort of quite uh, battered and, and bruised coming out of it. He won with a razor thin plurality of, of the vote. And so I would almost caution against thinking about it in terms of Fetterman losing ground. That Fetterman entered this year with a quite strong name, you know, uh, name brand ID in the state. And Dr. Oz, of course, uh, you know, there's been a lot of discussion around his residency and so forth. And he emerged from a really competitive, highly divided, uh, Republican primary. And I think it's taken some time to see uh, the Republican side of the field consolidate around him. So I think what we've seen is almost not so much John Fetterman losing ground so much as as we get closer to election day, uh, Dr. Oz continuing to solidify uh, the normal Republican base, base of support. This is the tougher primary to recover from. But as we're closing in on the election day, the, the base is starting to come home. Yeah. Yeah. That I there, there were a number of polls earlier in the year that showed Fetterman winning by 
10 points, 11 points, 12 points. And I don't think that was ever a realistic portrait of the race that I think, you know, John Fetterman definitely could win that he's currently favored in our model. But uh, if John Fetterman does win, I think it's much more likely to be a narrow victory by two to four points rather than some of these 10, you know, eight, nine, 10 point leads that we saw earlier in the year. So, Kyle, we're about a week out from the reporting that Herschel Walker paid for an ex-girlfriend to get an abortion. Um, What impact has that had on polling in the model for Georgia? So actually, this week, we saw polling in Georgia for Raphael Warnock start to come back down to earth a bit, that there were some polls for Warnock that came out immediately following uh, sort of all the news events last week. And uh, last week when we spoke, uh, Warnock had something like a five and a half point lead over Herschel Walker. But this week, he's down to around a two or three point lead in our polling average that as polls have continued to come out and as we get further away from these news events, I think it's important to bear in mind that in our really highly polarized modern partisan environment, uh, individual news events oftentimes don't cause long-term changes in races, that you can see quick sort of uh, snap reactions to news events that happen. But I think you will often see things revert back to whatever the partisan fundamentals are for, for a given race, that there were some polls this week from the University of Georgia. Georgia from Trafalgar that showed uh, Walker either narrowly trail uh, Walker either narrowly leading or not trailing by by a whole lot, and that pushed Warnock's lead in our polling average down. And actually, this week we moved Georgia from Georgia. We actually had br- very briefly as likely D and moved it back to lean D this week, following uh, the continued tightening of those polls as we get further out from the uh, I think immediate snap reaction to some of those news events. And again, it's sort of a reversion to what you would expect as we get closer to election day, right? The base, even though it was shaken a little bit, it's actually starting to come back home. Yeah, exactly. That I think in a state like Georgia, that is highly, I think it's fair to characterize Georgia as one of the most closely divided states in, in the U.S., that I, I think we would all be very, very surprised to see a Raphael Warnock victory in Georgia by more than four or five points. That Raphael Warnock certainly could win re-election and is currently leading in our model, but some of those polls that came out immediately following last week's news events showed Raphael Warnock having leads that I think sort of don't reflect the extent to which Churchill Walker will continue to hold on to the GOP base which is very sizable in a state like Georgia. That In a state like Georgia, I think it's fair to say that Herschel Walker has a quite high, flo- uh, has a quite high floor that's going to be challenging for a Republican or a Democrat, for that matter, to, to fall below. So let's move over to the House a little bit now. What kind of movement have you seen in House races over the last week? And is anything special popping out at you? Sure. So we haven't seen a lot of high-level movement in the House over the past week that, uh, as I mentioned a bit earlier, we continue to see, uh, our model continues to see Republicans landing with something like 229, 230 seats, something like a modest but significant 25-seat majority over Democrats in the House after this November's election. Uh, the high level, t- the top line probability of Republicans flipping the chamber is still at around 75, 76%. So three in four chance that Republicans flip control of the House, which hasn't changed a whole lot in a while because the House model is largely driven by fundamentals. There aren't a whole lot of House level polls. House level polls are expensive and challenging to do. And so you don't get a lot of publicly available House polling. 
Uh, one part, one specific race that I did want to highlight that there was one poll that came out this past week that changed our model significantly was in California's 27th congressional district. So incumbent Republican Mike Garcia is running for reelection there against Christy Smith, uh, against Democrat Christy Smith. And this is actually sort of interesting from a narrative perspective, because this is the third time they've faced off against each other, that following uh, former House Representative Katie Hill's departure from Congress, there was a special election between Mike Garcia and Christy Smith that Mike Garcia narrowly won. And then they faced off again during the normal 2020 election and Mike Garcia narrowly won again. And now they're facing off for the third time. And I think given that, again, Joe Biden is the president, his pop, uh, his job approval ratings continue to be not particularly great. This is a really highly, uh, this is a really white, highly educated uh, congressional district in North Los Angeles that sort of speaks a lot. You know, this is the kind of place that once was solidly Republican in a sort of pre-Trump era, but now is highly competitive in a world that is ed polarized along educational lines and more highly educated white individuals tend to be a little bit disaffected from the modern Republican Party, uh, and so is today highly competitive. But because we're in this midterm environment that's not particularly favorable to Democrats, uh, we expected uh, Mike Garcia to be able to hold on to his seat, again, running as, now, uh, running as an incumbent for the third time against the same opponent. But this poll that came out this week actually showed Christy Smith winning by uh, a with a six-point advantage over Mike Garcia. And that significantly narrowed that margin. That we still have Mike Garcia with something like a 60% chance to, to win and defeat Christy Smith and hold on to the seat. But it's an interesting example of the kind of place where Democrats need to hold on to the votes of white, highly educated individuals who, in the not distant past, were voting in significant numbers for Mitt Romney, but were very disaffected by the Republican party in sort of the Trump era. Um, so I think California's 27th district is an interesting uh, place to watch that we saw come to the fore at one point this past week. That's where I did my first congressional races back in the early 1990s. So no, oh, really? well, yeah. <laughs> Let's talk if we can for a moment about the mechanics of polling. Uh, there were a couple polls from Center Street PAC uh, this week that were outliers to say the least. Um, Center Street PAC is kind of a new new kid on the block, uh, just new polls coming out for the first time in the 2022 cycle. I don't think they were around in 2020, um, but they had Fetterman up by 19 points in Pennsylvania and Mark Kelly up by 17 points in Arizona. Can you talk about how you weigh different polls and what are the things that you look for? Sure. So I think it's important to bear in mind that when, that our model includes fundamentals and our model also includes polling. We uh, look at many, many different polls and create a holistic portrait of where we think the race is based on all of those different polls. So, of course, some pollsters uh, are partisan pollsters. Other pollsters are affiliated with uh, news journalistic organizations or academic institutions. And overall, we try and look at everything together. We try to not uh, get into the game of identifying what are good pollsters, what are bad pollsters. We very much come at it from a trust the average sort of perspective that while there definitely are, do exist uh, polls that are outliers on either side of the partisan spectrum. You know, you just highlighted some that are outliers sort of on the Democratic side. There are other pollsters that are outliers on the Republican side that we think about it from, you know, let's uh, you know, we need to sort of look at everything and, and trust the average as much as possible, that uh, we try and avoid sort of getting into the game of putting our finger on on the scale or, uh, you know, and I can't speak for the methodology of specific pollsters. Uh, but that's sort of how, how we come at it and think about it, that, you know, we're trying to combine what the fundamentals say about how a given state uh, should vote based on its ethnic demographic composition and past voting history, and then what every pollster uh, 
that uh, that we see uh, is saying about that particular race and combining all of those things together. So this is not to say you should trust every individual poll that comes in. In fact, I think our position would be you should trust no individual poll that comes in, that you should look at all of them together because all of those things combined are giving you a directional picture of how the race is going. I'm going to ask you about North Carolina, the Senate seat there, if I could. We've got another question after this, but I, I really want to dig into North Carolina because it's a state that always has fascinated me. It looks a little bit more like uh, it always has this sort of democratic flirtation. It always looks like it's a little bit more competitive than it sometimes appears. Can you talk about North Carolina and how that Senate race is looking? Sure. So right now, uh, North Carolina is a toss-up in our Senate model, but Republicans have a significant advantage that uh, we give Ted Budd, the Republican candidate, about a 60% chance of defeating Sherry Beasley, the, the Democratic candidate. So even though the race is a toss-up, it's sort of very close to that lean R toss-up sort of boundary, and Ted Budd, the Republican, has a significant advantage. And I think North Carolina is an, exam an interesting example of a state that's kind of inelastic, that even though it always looks like uh, um, Democrats have, have a chance of winning, you often see this pattern pattern of Republicans winning by a small but by a small modest but real margin that we saw this in the 2016 and 2020 presidential elections we saw this in the 2020 Senate election in North Carolina when Cal Cunningham lost by a pretty narrow margin um, so I think it's a state that oftentimes sort of, uh, you might say, flirts with being competitive, but where Republicans continue to hold a consistent advantage. So even though it is a toss-up in our model, uh, we give a, uh, right now Republicans have a, do have a significant advantage. We view them as about 20% more likely than the Democrat to be able to, to win that seat. Uh, so again, a state that is at the edge of competitive. I might, I might almost put it in the same bucket as a state like Wisconsin this cycle, where Mandela Barnes looks like he's running a competitive race against Ron Johnson, but where we give Ron Johnson a significant advantage. Uh, I would almost look at North Carolina similarly, where Ted Budd, unlike Ron Johnson, is not an incumbent, but North Carolina is a state where Republicans typically, and I think especially in a year where, Demo where um, the Democratic incumbent president isn't especially popular, have a real advantage. So Kyle, as it sits right now, which party do you expect to win the House and the Senate and what margin do you think they'll have? I know we covered that a little bit, but just as a quick roundup. Sure. So I, right now we give Republicans about a 75% chance of flipping the House of Representatives and probably landing with something like a 25-seat total majority. So it's not impossible for Democrats to hold the House, but it would definitely be an upset. And ultimately, we don't think, even though we think Republicans will flip the House, we don't think they will end up with like a historically large majority. A 20-seat majority is pretty modest by historical standards. Um, sort of a similar but inverted story on the Senate side, that right now we give Democrats about a 64% chance of retaining Senate control, but we think they are likely to end up with uh, continuing to hold just a 50-50 bare raw majority. That uh, we've seen things trend away from them a little bit over the past week, but uh, you know they have a very narrow but real advantage in, in the Senate. So 50-50 uh, continued Democratic control in the Senate seems like the most likely outcome right now, and um, something like a 25-seat Republican majority in the House seems like the most likely outcome right now on the House side. Kyle, as always, you've been absolutely amazing. So, so informative. I want to thank you so much for your time. Thank you for joining us today. And we will see you next week. Oh, yeah, no problem. Thank you so much. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. 
If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.